Now it's our joy to open God's Word. I invite you please to Acts chapter 6. And as we study this unique book, one-of-a-kind book in the Word of God, we're studying the historical record of the greatest spiritual transition in history. Jesus announced the arrival of the new covenant that night before he went to the cross. And then on the cross, remember, he triumphantly announced, it is finished. He'd finished satisfying the wrath of God for all who would believe. At that moment, God ripped the veil over the entrance of the Holy of Holies in two from top to bottom, and that was to symbolize that the ministry of the temple was complete for that, at that time. And now access was directly into the presence of God. Well, from then on until A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed, everything that happened in that temple was a giant spiritual lame duck session. The old covenant is closed. The new covenant is here. Well, that was a transition. It didn't just all happen at once. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to over 500 people after His resurrection. He gave instructions to the apostles. He ascended to the Father. And then He sent the Holy Spirit just as He had promised multiple times. And the era of the new covenant burst to life. Acts is the record of approximately the first three decades of that new era. Now through five chapters we've seen about... 15 to 20,000 people turn to Christ. They meet daily in the temple as often as they can. They meet in homes. They, they share all aspects of a joyous new life together. And remember, many of these people weren't from Jerusalem. They had come to Jerusalem for the pilgrim feast of, the, uh, of Pentecost. And so this is a, a massive thing that's going on with these, these thousands of people celebrating this new life in Christ. Well, the unbelieving leaders of the Jews are furious. We've already seen they, they threw Peter and John in jail over the, overnight. It didn't do any good. The gospel spread even faster as soon as they released them. Then Satan concocted an attack on the Christians by manipulating a prominent husband and wife who were generous donors to lie about what they had done, and they were struck dead in front of everyone. People were shocked, but they were also sobered to the holiness of God, and the gospel kept spreading even more. Then the, the Sanhedrin, that leaders, leaders of the Jews, primarily the high priests, they threw all the apostles in jail. But the apostles refused to back down. And following the, the famous advice of a rabbi named Gamaliel, they decided that since they really haven't done anything illegal, we're going to let them go free again. But they flogged them first. Okay, well, we don't find any fault in you. We're just going to beat you to almost to the edge of death and then let you go. And the gospel continued to spread. That brings us to chapter 6. And that's when we see this new group begin to be organized by anything other than the direct 
oversight of the apostles. Now, there's 120 people in that first upper room, and then, you know, the preaching of Peter, and after the Holy Spirit comes, and, and 3,000 people believe. That's a, that's a lot to cover for 12 guys. Well, now it's more like 15,000, 20,000 people. And when we stuck our toes in this chapter last time, I, I began to make the case for you that this is the beginning of the development of the church, the body of Christ. This is the, this is the new thing. So I made the case for you that you want to be a member of this, the, the, the case for church membership. Some people say church membership isn't in the Bible. Well, if you skip the whole book of Acts and everything from there on, no, it's not. It does, there's no passage that says you must be a member of a local church. But in Christ, we are members of one another. And look at what they did as this first group blossomed. They kept records. They counted people. They knew who was in and who was out. They knew people's marital status. They knew everyone's um, ethnicities and all the subtleties of that because they'd come from all over the Roman Empire. They, they knew the native languages of the people that were there. They, they copiously took care of one another, even to the point of some of the locals selling property to raise the money to take care of needs as they arose from those who were from, from out of town. That was amazing in light of how many people there were there. They sought to rigorously care for the most needy, and that tended to focus on the widows. And that's what touched off the situation that is the focus of this chapter. So, as I urged last time, we're seeing the pattern developing. It it is vitally important for every Christian to be as overtly attached to the local church as possible. We call that concept church membership. Uh, To shy away from being openly identified with a local church is to say, I don't want to be known for the one thing that Jesus is doing on earth, which is building His church. We need to be committed visibly, vocally, outwardly, obviously, as in Christ and belonging to each other. If you were to fast forward about 30 years from what we're studying right now, uh, this group that we've met in Acts uh, 1 through 5 that has been made up at that time completely of those who were Jews, it had grown and encompassed then not only those who were in Jerusalem, but those who were in Judea, the surrounding area, and then Samaria, which the Jews hated, Samaritans, and then the Gentiles, and they had nothing to do with Gentiles. But now it's grown, or by 30 years from now, it's grown like crazy. Now it's more Gentiles than Jews. And once Gentiles became a part of the mix, God raised up a special additional apostle to assemble teams to take the gospel primarily to Gentiles. And we're going to see about half or more of the book of Acts devoted to that. Now churches in every place where the gospel went were led... Not by apostles. There were only 12 of them until Paul came along, and there was a a 13th one. But there is no such thing as apostolic succession beyond that. That group died out. And all of those uh, (laughs) flocks of God's people around the world were led by um, shepherds of the flock. And the word uh, pastor is simply the Latin word for shepherd. 
so pastors or shepherds of the flock, and they were also known as elders or overseers. In every local church, there was always a plurality of the elders. And as the apostles died off and the written New Testament was completed, the leadership of the apostles and the prophets, which we're seeing in early Acts, uh, was replaced by the leadership of evangelists or missionaries and what Ephesians 4 calls pastors and teachers. So the study of all this stuff, the development of how the church, the body of Christ, the capital C church, is to be organized, is the, the doctrine of ecclesiology. That's the fancy word for the doctrine of the church. Acts 6 is the first part of the progressive revelation of ecclesiology. Now, progressive revelation is an important concept. We, see it, we say it applies to the whole Bible. If you had the book of Genesis and you only had the book of Genesis, every single thing you had would be with the Word of God. But it wouldn't be the whole Word of God. The Bible progresses from incomplete to complete. Well, even within the Bible, we have the progressive revelation of the church. It starts here, this first step of organization beyond the apostles, and then it becomes more fully developed. Not surprisingly, most of ecclesiology was unveiled through the writings of Paul and Peter. Consider a couple of uh, scriptures that, that just touch on that. We'll say more as we get into later chapters when we have to cross-reference things that Paul wrote. But Philippians chapter 1 verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Just in his introduction to that letter, in the address line, he says, oh, by the way, under the overseers and the deacons. Those are the two offices that will come to be the, the leaders of the church for all time. Overseers is one of three words that's used in the New Testament for the shepherds of the flock. The other two are elders and pastors. Um, they were and they are the two groups of the leaders in the church, elders and deacons, or overseers and deacons. Now, once the fullness of the doctrine of ecclesiology was unfolded, every church had its own elders and deacons. First Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 contain the, the lists of the biblical character qualities that are required to recognize who is an elder. And in First Timothy chapter 3, there's an almost identical list for deacons. The main difference between the two, uh, those two offices, is that the elders are where the buck stops, if you will. They are the leaders in soul care and in preaching and teaching. Hebrews 13 says we will give an account for the souls of the, that are entrusted to us. The deacons are primarily assisting the elders and taking charge of hands-on ministries. Elders and deacons work closely together uh, as a, a, and as a team, but that's the distinction. And once we get Paul on the scene, you're going to see several more steps, even here in the book of Acts, in the progressive unfolding of ecclesiology. But today, the, what did I call it? The infant church takes baby steps. Once the leadership of the church was in the hands of the elders, it was Peter who um, shows us the seamless connection between the leadership of the apostles and the leadership of 
the elders, the apostles being only in the first generation of the church. But Peter, even though he was an apostle, even though he was the mouthpiece of the apostles at the beginning, he considered himself, as that transition unfolded, to be one of the elders. Look what he wrote in 1 Peter 5, 1-3. He says, therefore, and now he's writing to several different churches in several different places that we're going to see mentioned here in the book of Acts. He says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. There's his command. Shepherd the flock of God among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. All three of the words for elders are used there. Elders, oversight, exercising oversight, and shepherds. They're all, they're all different ways of describing the same office of elder, overseer, and shepherd. We really missed Scott Basolo for a couple of weeks, but he was ministering in a place where you have pastors that have been saturated in the anti-First Peter 5 methodology of quasi-pseudo-spiritual leadership, where they do do it for sordid gain. The prosperity gospel, it works great for making prosperous preachers. And it just sucks the life out of everybody else. Uh, this is exactly what we need to be doing, is building churches in the way that Christ wants it done. Now, today, let's take a look at this infant church in Jerusalem choosing its first deacons. We began last time, just kind of got our feet wet, and I wanted to make the point to you that, that this whole concept of of um, organizing and knowing who is in and who is out and what the lines of accountability are begin to be developed very early here in the book of Acts. Well, it starts with this. Number one, a need arises. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. The Greek-speaking contingent was concerned that their widows were not being treated the same as the Hebrew-speaking or Aramaic-speaking widows. It was a legitimate need, and it was prime opportunity for disaster. What? You're not taking care of my grandma like you take care of your grandma? Well, we're going to have to deal with this. Well, it was a legitimate thing. But this ministry was huge. It was growing rapidly, and every day they were taking care of the most needy, especially the widows. So, if you will, there were growing pains in this, in this whole operation. A need arises. Number two, we pointed out, leaders prioritize. Now, we said it's a very good thing to feed hungry people. It's a very good thing for believers to share needs together. It's a very good thing to pay special attention to the needs of widows. But it's not possible to study and teach full-time, to be devoted daily to prayers, and to reason with people day in and day out about the gospel in the temple and from house to house, and also to handle the hard work of 
distributing and serving food. So they kept their priorities. Look at verse 2. So the twelve, the apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. It's not wrong to serve tables. It's right to serve tables. But we have to prioritize who does what. So after the need arises and the leaders prioritize, the leaders propose a plan. The plan proposed by the twelve did not minimize the complaint, took it seriously, and also kept their priorities in place. So verses 3 and 4, they said, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Nearly all commentators and Christian theologians believe that Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, is the beginning of the office of deacon in the church. Now, those who don't agree with that say that, well, these men that were chosen to serve were never given the title deacon. Well, that's an argument from silence. What they did was they deked. Okay? The word deacon means servant. They were appointed to oversee the daily serving of things under the leadership of the apostles. That's exactly the relationship between elders and deacons as it is uh, developed later in the, in the New Testament. I, I agree this is the beginning of the concept of deacons. The concept is here. People chosen because of spiritual qualifications to serve under the leadership of the apostles, later the elders, to carry on certain ministries of the church. That's the pattern described, especially in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Now, the ministry that needed the oversight is exactly the kind of thing that deacons are best suited for. So there's a sequence of events here that outlines the process of choosing these three men. And there are practical applications here. Just, just listen to this process. It began with people being saved. This whole thing starts with Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. By the way, it was this Jesus that you crucified. There's His tomb. It's empty. You got a problem. You are in opposition to God. You preach the gospel. It begins with people being saved and then continuing in fellowship with one another and, and, and learning sound doctrine. And then as, they, as this whole group grows in their fellowship, spirit-led ministry goes on, like taking care of widows. There were many things happening, but the daily care of widows began to expose a weakness that needed to be addressed. So a need arises to make sure that the ministry is as effective as possible. The leaders acknowledge the need. Now, it's not spelled out in the text exactly, but it's quite clear there was open communication between the leaders, the apostles, and the people involved in the ministries of the church. There was a very close fellowship. And then we saw the leaders maintain their priorities. Good leaders don't abandon what God calls them to do. There are many good works to be done, but that doesn't mean everyone should do all of them. 
And leaders especially have to prioritize and they have to equip and, and utilize the gifts of other people. So the leaders propose the solution. They figure out a way to not minimize what they do, but they harness the gifts of, that God has given to other people. And here's another practical application you can make, make from that. Whenever you begin to do something in the church, whenever you see a need and you start to meet it, whenever you accept a responsibility and you start to, and you start to do it, you should immediately, always, and forever be seeking out and challenging others to come and help you do it. That's how people learn to serve, by being asked to serve, by having someone show them how to serve, and they join you, and they, and they help. That is, uh, that's called discipleship. That's how disciples are made. That's exactly what Jesus did. He brought these guys together, he taught them, and he, and he had them go to work. Then, we have the congregation getting involved in this. They are asked to participate by recommending qualified people to take on the responsibility. Notice they said, select from among you qualified men. That reflects the godly wisdom of leading by sound principles rather than by making edicts. They said, okay, you see who is being faithful. You know the people around you. You recommend to us people whom we may put in charge, and that's the next principle. The leaders screen the recommendations. Spiritual leadership is not a matter of a popularity contest or democratic rule. It's led by the most godly ones who take the oversight to take the initiative to find the people to train and equip to be servants and potential leaders. And then you see the leaders seek agreement from the people to confirm those additional leaders, and they select from among you seven men full of or seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. So that brings us to the next step in our text. New leaders are recognized and commissioned in public. So people are put forth for the job. Verse 5. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Now, notice again the solid, solid connection between the apostles and the whole congregation. Wise, humble, Godly leadership coupled with willing submission and faithful service, that's the formula for a very healthy church. Now, what do we know about these first deacons? Well, we know that each of them had a good reputation. That means that they were known by others and they were highly regarded by all. And as we see this fleshed out further, when Paul writes down the qualifications for deacons, he says, having a good reputation with those on the outside. So it's not just somebody who is nice to you at church, but it's also somebody who doesn't abuse employees and harass neighbors and, and make himself a jerk outside of, of church. 
So good reputation. And each one was full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Remember the idea of being full of something means to be guided and controlled by it. If you say someone is full of jealousy, well, jealousy is controlling what they do. Full of anger, anger is controlling what they do. Full of compassion, compassion is controlling what they do. Well, full of the Spirit means they're doing those things that would eventually be written down as the fruit of the Spirit that's manifest in their lives. They also were guided by wisdom, which means they were knowledgeable about God's Word and their advice had known to be, was known to be trustworthy because of the way they lived. Now, what about the specific guys? Well, Stephen is the, uh, the one here who's going to attract the most attention. He's going to play a key role in spreading the gospel in Jerusalem. And it was, now here comes a spoiler alert, Peter's pers- or Stephen's persecution and martyrdom that's about to happen, that's going to propel the church to spread out from Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus said, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, outside the the walls of Jerusalem, and Samaria and the remotest parts of the earth. Well, Stephen getting persecuted was a catalyst. We'll see that when we get a little bit further in Acts. Then there's Philip. Philip is the second most of them. He's going to be prominent for a little while later in Acts. He is the one who's going to take the gospel to the Samaritans. Oh, and that was leaping a fire break. Jews and Samaritans didn't have anything to do with each other. Do you remember what a scandal it was when Jesus said, we're going to cut through Samaria on the way to Galilee? (gasps) Jews don't do that. Philip took the gospel to the Samaritans, and then, famously, he took the gospel to a a eunuch from Ethiopia. Wow, that's pretty unique. By the way, that's a good mission strategy. Go to your local campus, find the foreign students, witness to them, lead them to Christ, and send them back home. You're sending out missionaries that don't have to go through language school. That's exactly what happened with the gospel going to Ethiopia. And interestingly, four of Philip's daughters were to become prophetesses. We'll talk about that when we encounter it later. Now, we don't have any biblical information about the other five of these seven. Uh, There are some traditions which connect this guy Prochorus with the Apostle John. It's theorized he might have been John's amanuensis when John wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, Those same traditions say that uh, Prochorus eventually became the bishop of Nicomedia. That's the capital city of the Roman province called Bithynia, and that he was eventually martyred in Antioch. I can't refute any of that, but I also can't prove any of that. It's certainly plausible. The only other comment we have here among these other five is that Nicholas was a proselyte. That means he wasn't born a Jew. He was a Gentile who converted to Judaism, and he came from Antioch. Now, it's interesting. That may have been especially used by God when the gospel went to the Gentiles, and Antioch became the first fully Gentile church that sent out missionaries. They sent out um, Paul and Barnabas on their first Uh, missionary journey and their second for that matter. 
So the names don't matter a lot, but you're going to see quite a bit about Stephen, and you're going to see quite a bit about Philip, and trust me, the other five were nice guys too. So a need arises, leaders prioritize, leaders propose a plan, people are put forth. The leaders pray and confirm, verse 6, and these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Laying hands on is identifying with somebody. We do it at uh, ordination services. We do it when we uh, typically send out people on short-term missions. Call them up, have the leaders pray for them, put your hands on them uh, in the sense of, you know, we're connected here and we're like, it's like we're conferring upon you our blessing. We are praying for God's power for you, for your, for your ministry. The fact that this was a wise step to take in the development of the new church and how it operates is evident from the next step. God keeps moving. Look at verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading. And the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And then here, listen to this. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. That phrase continued to increase, increase greatly shows that even the very best efforts of the, uh, of the counters, they couldn't keep up with the exact number, but the intensity of the caring for one another never waned. And then there's this astonishing, God-glorifying thing a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, remember, it's been the high priests, the chief muckymucks, the ones that controlled the Sanhedrin. They're the ones that have been systematically persecuting the Christians. This is talking about the everyday priests, like, um, like um, uh, 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 John the Baptist's father... Say it out loud. Zechariah. Yeah, okay. I'm sorry. See, the, the full effects of the surgery don't take place for a little while. Uh, these are the guys like Zechariah who lived all around the area and they came and did, did stints of service in, the, in, in the, the temple and they did the sacrifices and they did the hard work. These were the regular run-of-the-mill priests, if you were, and the average priests began to see the message of the gospel... Can you imagine how many people were witnessing to them? And they were seeing the contrast between the Christians and this spectacular fellowship that was going on versus what their leaders were doing to the people who were having this spectacular fellowship. So many of them were becoming obedient to the faith. Now the text doesn't say it directly, but... The fact that we're about to see this intense persecution break out against Stephen, it just might be related to this statement about many of the priests becoming obedient to the faith. That would not have pleased those guys in the Sanhedrin. I mean, what if they had to get their hands dirty and actually make the sacrifices in the temple? What if they had to work extra shifts because people were resigning their commission as priests. So before we shift our focus to Stephen, 
I want you again to, to notice some spiritual principles for local church leadership that are illustrated in this text. And I want to say it because this is the beginning. This is the infant church taking baby steps. And we're going to see many more steps through the book of Acts. And then you have the fullness of it in the rest of the New Testament. And if you are careful and diligent, you would be able to see how every one of these things I'm about to tell you is put into practice in one way or another in the bylaws of Heritage Bible Church. Now, if you haven't yet taken our Heritage Bible Church distinctives class, put a bookmark here, take the class next time it's offered, and you will see these things fleshed out in how we try to follow the biblical pattern. Number one, the autonomous government of the local church. Now, right away, I'm going to grant to you, it's a stretch to say that right here because at this time, there was exactly one congregation of Christians in the world, all right? But it was autonomous, okay? You're, you're going to see this develop, though, through the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. Different churches in different places cooperated with one another, but the elders of each local church were the leaders of that local church's congregation. The submission was mutual, but the autonomy of the local church is a very clear New Testament principle. And by the way, remember I mentioned the guy Procurus was uh, uh, believed to have gone on to be the bishop of a certain city in Bithynia? That idea of bishops, which is a translation of the word overseers, the idea of bishops with authority over all the churches in a region, not just a specific local church, that was not developed until well after the close of the New Testament. We'll probably talk about it later as we move through uh, the book of Acts, but that's not a biblical office of like regional bishop or some denominations have regional supervisors or superintendents or, or things like that. It isn't necessarily an evil thing But any hierarchy above the local church is uh, extra-biblical. We'll leave it at that for now. Notice this principle of maintaining spiritual priorities, which are the best for all. Uh, The standard was set from the beginning. They feasted every day on the apostles' doctrine. It would have been a disaster if if the apostles had not held on to their priorities and passed them along to the elders who would lead the next generations of believers. We have this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, like being members of a local church, and are of God's household, like being part of a local church, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That's all built on the priorities of feasting on the apostles' doctrine, the the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So, notice also the principle of recognizing men who have developed within the local church. It was important and it was significant that the apostles asked the whole congregation 
to recommend men in whom they saw leadership ability, in whom they saw patterns of faithfulness and wisdom and the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. Then there's dealing with needs and problems openly and in unity. These principles kept that first complaint from causing a shipwreck. So, Acts chapter 6. A need arises, leaders prioritize, leaders propose a plan, people are put forth, leaders pray and confirm, God keeps moving, and then Stephen rises up. We're not told how long it took. We're not told exactly what happened. But it became obvious that the hand of God was on Stephen in such a way that he developed a ministry like that of the twelve apostles. And he began to manifest gifts of an apostle, signs of an apostle that 2 Corinthians 12 describes. Acts 6 verse 8. And Stephen, full, that means controlled by, full of power, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Well, of course, we know what happened when Peter and John did that. We know what happened later when somebody else did that. Any demonstration of the power of God and any powerful proclamation of the gospel of the resurrected Jesus Christ drew immediate opposition from the unbelieving and apostate Jewish leaders. So verse 9. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia rose up and argued with Stephen. Now, there's, a, there's some details there that we really don't need to dive into too much, but it does seem this looks like another one of those situations where people that didn't particularly have a lot to do with each other got together and shared the bond of their mutual hatred of Jesus and his apostles, and his people. The, there was the synagogue of the freedmen, another synagogue including Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and another composed of people from Cilicia and Asia. So after the, here's the deal, after the, the return from the Babylonian captivity, people didn't have a temple yet, and they were scattered around, but in the captivity they had begun to meet in places called synagogues from the Greek word sunagoge, which means a gathering together. A synagogue is a gathering together. It required ten uh, males, heads of households, to, to form a synagogue. That was the minimum size. And they, they met. It was, it was the precursor to the local church in, in the days of, of Judaism. So with the ones mentioned here, the cultural and dynamic, or the cultural and linguistic differences between them make it very unlikely these were all from one synagogue. The other thing that's interesting is when people would come to Jerusalem for the feasts like Passover and Pentecost where a lot of people from out of town would come, they would gather from out of town like if we had an RV convention here and we had a whole bunch of people from Wisconsin, they would probably park together. They would even meet in their synagogue, if you will, in Jerusalem. Now, the freedmen were descendants of Jewish slaves who had been captured by Pompey in 63 B.C. Go look up the history if you want to. They were taken to Rome. When they were granted their freedom, they formed a Jewish community in Rome. 
Cyrenians and Alexanders refers to people from two major cities in North Africa, Cyrene and Alexandria. By the way, uh, Cyrene (coughs) was the home of that man named Simon, Simon the Cyrene, who helped carry Jesus' cross to the place of the crucifixion. Cilicia and Asia were Roman provinces in Asia Minor. That's the area of the, of the seven churches to which the book of Revelation is addressed in what we now call Turkey. And we know that since Paul's hometown of Tarsus, follow this now, Paul's hometown of Tarsus was located in the province of Cilicia. Therefore, Paul likely attended that synagogue or the group of people from there in Jerusalem. And we're going to see later, Paul is going to be present at Stephen's trial and execution. So talk about maybe the Holy Spirit wrote this book. This is likely the first oblique reference to the Apostle Paul, other than the fact that we know that his rabbinical teacher was Gamaliel, who was the guy that gave the interesting advice back in chapter 5. All right, here's what happened. Verse 9, they argued with um, Stephen. The word that's translated argued infers more of a debate. It probably started out friendly. After all, Stephen was full of grace. He was a nice guy. You could talk to him. Um, But if you're trying to refute a spirit-filled spokesman of God and you don't believe that he's telling you the truth when he says Jesus died and rose again, Um, you're either going to repent or the conversation is going to deteriorate. And deteriorate it did. Verse 10. but, But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, again the Jewish leaders, And they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. Seen that before. Put him in the middle, Sanhedrin in a circle around them, and you interrogate them. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. He wasn't flapped even by the false accusations. Now we're going to circle back to that when we enter chapter 7. But get that scene in your mind. There stands Stephen, as calm as an angel, listening to false accusations solicited against him by sinister false teachers who want to cause a riot and who are willing to commit murder to defend their spiritual turf. What happens next? Come next Lord's Day. If you want the trailer for it, go ahead and read chapter 7 on your own. Great chapter. But let's take away from this what we can do today. Are you watching for needs? Every need is an opportunity for service. Are you serving? Are you, as you serve, 
recruiting others to serve with you? And will you stand tall when the enemies of Christ come after you? Because, by the way, you will be persecuted if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. As the adage says, there's only four things that you're ever going to get in trouble for. Whatever you say, whatever you don't say, whatever you do, and whatever you don't do. So make sure that those are for the Lord. And if somebody wants to come after you, it's because they have a problem with your risen Lord. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is for us to look back through the telescope of history and see your infant church take its first steps. Heritage Bible Church stands many steps further down the road, and we want this place to be where your work is done, and where where your work is done in your way and by your people. So have your way with each of us. You know the needs of our hearts. You know the opportunities you would bring to us. Use them all, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.